Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we will be looking at uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. I'll ask with, uh, for you to bear with me this morning. I am struggling with a cold and losing my voice, so it stays like these where I'm happy that it doesn't rest on the inflection of the speaker, but it rests on God's word faithfully preached. So please bear with me. I might struggle and squeak here or there, but uh, God's word will be faithfully preached, Lord willing. Um, we will be looking at verses 1 through 13 in our reading, but our message this morning will focus uh, specifically on verses 1 through 8, the transfiguration event itself. Uh, just a brief little comment on verses 9 through 13. Uh, verse 9 through 13, as Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are descending the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the disciples ask Jesus, uh, shouldn't Elijah come first before the Messiah comes? And they ask that question because actually in the very last two verses of the Old Testament, it speaks of Elijah coming as the forerunner of the Messiah and Jesus responds by saying that Elijah has, in fact, come. And he has come in the person of John the Baptist. But Israel, represented by the person of King Herod, has put the forerunner of Christ to death, uh, showing that uh, Israel is blind not only to the Christ, but also to the forerunner. And also, as we will see, there is blindness on the disciples' end as well, uh, concerning the forerunner, John the Baptist, who is the Elijah that has come, and blindness concerning the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. So our focus will not be on verse 9 through 13. Uh, it does belong to this passage, so we will read from verses 1 through 13, uh, but just know that the focus of our message this, mo this morning will uh, take up verses 1 through 8. With that introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, 
Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Will you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come to a passage that is so glorious and so wonderful, it's hard for us to comprehend as we we delve into to Mark 9 to consider this transfiguration of Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ that shone forth in all its uh, refulgent splendor. And Father, I as one, as a feeble preacher, feel as though I am ill-prepared to preach on such a glorious passage. So I do pray, O oh Father, both for this congregation and for this feeble preacher, that your spirit would be near, that we would be able to grasp uh, insight into the wonder and the beauty of the glory of the Lord of glory, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts this hour, we pray, as we sit under your word with the knowledge of Christ and his glory that has been won for us at the cross of Calvary. Be near, we pray, by your spirit, for we ask it all in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We come this morning to a most glorious event in the ministry and life of Jesus Christ, an event that is recorded for us in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And though John doesn't have the event itself, uh, there are hints throughout John that he is at least hinting toward the transfiguration, especially in his prologue. It is an event that is known as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, where Christ's physical body and Christ's clothes are transfigured and transformed before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. The Greek word here literally is where we get the word metamorphosis. Jesus undergoes a, a metamorphosis where his whole makeup is changed in an instant. So that in verse 3, Mark can say his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's worth noting that according to, to tradition... It is Peter that is giving Mark his information for his gospel. And so you could see Peter sitting down here with Mark trying to explain this event to him. And he's just struggling to come up with the words that will do it justice. He's struggling. He's trying to come up with words that will, that will magnify and present to Mark, the writer of this gospel, the glory of what he saw there on that mountain. Have you ever seen something so wonderful, perhaps something in God's creation, the Grand Canyon and the Niagara Falls, whatever it might be, and you come home and you try to explain what it is that you saw to someone, and you just are struggling to come up with the words to say that will do justice to what you beheld. I think that's something similar to what we 
can understand Peter is doing here with Mark. He's struggling to come up with words, and he's trying to tell Mark of what he saw on that mountain. It, it, it was radiantly white. It, 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 it was intensely white. It was, it was so white that there's no bleach that could ever make it any whiter. He's just heaping on explicit adjective after adjective, trying to illumine to Mark and to us, the reader, of the magnificence and the glory that he saw on that mountain. And what is it that Peter is describing here but the powerful glory of God? He is trying to describe not only the powerful glory of God, but the powerful glory of God's kingdom. Notice verse 1. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Here, Peter, James, and John are those some those select few that Christ gives a vision of not only the power of the king and the glory of the king, but the glory of the kingdom that rests in the king himself. You try trying to to describe that. What Peter and James and John get a glimpse of here is the power and glory of Christ and his kingdom which will come to bear in its fullness when Christ comes again and makes all things new. What they are getting a glimpse of here is the glory of the victorious, exalted Son of God before that victory and exaltation takes place post-cross. What they are getting a glimpse of is what in many ways is a reality now as we sit here this day. Christ exalted, glorious, victorious over sin and death state. Christ who dwells now in unapproachable light due to his finished work on the cross. It's interesting, isn't it, that not only is Peter here for this event, but also is John. John, the very same writer of that book, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, John is given a vision of the victorious, exalted, resurrected Christ. And how is it that John describes him? Verse 13, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. Verse 16 of chapter 1 of Revelation, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So what John, Peter, and James see here is not Christ in his humiliated state, clothed in humble humanity, veiling his divine glory as the God-man. It is not Christ in his humiliated state, mocked, ridiculed, beaten, and crucified that they see. But they see the glorified Christ. The Christ that Paul speaks of in Philippians 2, that one day every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow down to. The Lord of glory shining forth in all his radiance, in all of his intense white glory. They get a preview, if you will, 
of what we will one day see when Christ comes again on the clouds of heaven to bring us home to our true citizenship, to our new heavens and to our new earth. And on that day, we too, brothers and sisters, will behold the radiantly white, the intensely white, the white that no bleach could possibly make white, glory of Christ. So what we have in the transfiguration is the glory of Christ in his exalted and victorious state over sin and death. And what I want us to see today is two things uh, in connection to Christ's glory. First, the glory of Christ and the cross. Second, the glory of Christ and God's word. The glory of Christ and the cross and the glory of Christ and God's word. First, the glory of Christ and the cross. Uh, verse 1 we see in chapter 9 seems as, on the surface, seems as somewhat of an odd transition from what we read back at the end of chapter 8, doesn't it? Uh, you recall last week when we read from the final verses in chapter 8, we read of Christ speaking uh, of the importance to his disciples that they take up their cross and follow him. Unless they take up their cross and follow him, they cannot be his disciples. But then he comes here in verse 1 to speak about seeing the glory of the power of the kingdom before some of them taste death. And it seems like a somewhat awkward transition. At the end of chapter 8, he's speaking of cross-bearing. But here now in chapter 9, verse 1, he's speaking of the glory that some will see. However, I think verse 38 of chapter 8 gives us a segue into the transfiguration narrative, a link to the glory that we read of on that mountain. Read verse 38 with me of chapter 8. For who is, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you see what Christ is saying here? The cro that cross-bearing is the necessary precondition of glory. Christ's exalted glory is tied to his suffering and to his cross. The transfiguration and the glory of Christ that is seen on the mountain is the glory of Christ that is realized through the cross. It's no mistake, I think, that Peter is here for this transfiguration event. Remember what we read a few weeks back in chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And you get that great confession from Peter. He says, you are the Christ. It's a great moment for Peter. But then Jesus, following that confession, begins to talk about his death and the cross that he must bear. And you get Peter rebuking Jesus, essentially denying Christ his cross. And then you have Jesus responding to Peter, rebuking him with those strong words that we read of, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Now, what was it that Peter was doing there in chapter 8 in denying Christ his cross? Well, he was trying to safeguard. He was trying, so he thought, to safeguard and hold intact the glory of Christ, the glory and honor of the Christ. For, for Peter, Jesus being the Christ means the absolute opposite of suffering. It means the opposite of the cross. Peter saw the glory of Christ much in the same way our world understands glory today. Through fame and fortune, by conquering our enemies through might and brawn. And that is very much what is on the mind of Peter. He hears in one breath that he's the Christ and then suffering in the cross. That just doesn't fit for Peter. And so by rebuking Jesus and his suffering, Peter is seeking to uphold the honor and the glory of Christ, at least so he thinks. And here at the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ is showing Peter that it is quite the opposite. The glory of Christ must, must come through the cross. Yet here on this mountain, as Peter is beholding Christ and his glory, we see in verses 5 through 6, he still just doesn't get it. Verse 5 through 6, you have Peter not knowing what to say at this grand vision. He's terrified at the sight of it all, and he just blurts out something that he probably thought sounded pious, sounded righteous, something that probably fit the moment in his mind. You ever beheld something so wonderful with a group of people, and you think you feel compelled, like you need to say something that will equal the wonderful nature of what it is you're beholding? And the moment you say it, and the moment you get done, you're like, man, why didn't I just shut up? And just behold this with everyone else. It's kind of what you have here with Peter. I got to say something. I got to say something pious, wonderful, that will fit what it is I am seeing. And note what it is that Peter says in verse 5. Let us make tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what is Peter doing by saying that? What is it that Peter is trying to do? Once again, like in chapter 8, where he refused the cross for Christ, Peter is trying to hold that glory that he sees on the mountain, which is a temporary vision of what will come after the cross, and he is seeking to make it permanent. He is not seeing it as a momentary event meant to show the glory that must come through the cross, but he is rather trying to capture the glory, to make that glory a permanent reality, to domesticate it, rather than seeing it as a glimpse, a preview of what must come as Jesus treks toward Jerusalem to die. In Luke's account of this same event, in Luke chapter 9, verse 30 through 31, we read there from Luke, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that word there for departure is literally the word exodus. Exodus, 
Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus before Peter about Christ's exodus that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. Here is Moses, the leader of Israel's first exodus, now testifying to Christ's exodus, which will come by way of the cross in Jerusalem. Christ's exodus, Christ's departure from the sinful world. Christ's exodus, Christ's departure from his humiliated state into his glorified state must come through the cross, through his dying in Jerusalem. His exodus is not an exodus from bondage to Egypt or any foreign enemy. Is it an exodus, a departure from sin and death itself? It breaks loose the bonds and the chains of sin and death which veil the glory of Christ. And it is through his exodus at the cross of Calvary that we, united to him, are delivered not from the bondage to foreign enemies, but from bondage to sin and death, our greatest enemy. What the Mount of Transfiguration really brings us is a whole new outlook on suffering. A whole new transformative outlook on how we understand suffering. White refulgent glory, white as snow glory, is tied to suffering and the cross. John 12, 23, Jesus says, Now is the hour that the Son of Man will be glorified. What is it that he was speaking of? He was speaking of his death on the cross. I think oftentimes when we speak of suffering as Christians, we often ask ourselves, would I be able to lose my life for Christ? Would I be able to go through that? I don't know if I could do it. And oftentimes what the conversation really becomes all about is a conversation of how much suffering we would be able to endure. I could see myself going this far, but probably not that far. And as we think of suffering as a Christian, our minds really are focused in and on ourselves. Focused on us and our capabilities and what we think we're able to endure. And we so often miss the glory connected to Christ and the cross. The transformative outlook the cross gives us on how we see suffering and cross-bearing. Not some abstract glory. Not some human temporal glory that will fade along with this dying world but white, intensely white, radiantly white, divine, eternal glory united to the cross and to suffering. Brothers and sisters, what sufferings are you currently dealing with today? What sufferings for the sake of Christ scares you? You think about it and it just keeps you up at night. Would I be able to do that? The answer does not lie in yourself and looking at yourself and your own capabilities and what you think you are able to endure. 
The answer lies in looking outside of yourself onto Christ and his glory that is connected to his cross-bearing. And as we look outside of ourselves onto Christ and his cross-bearing glory, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to enable us and to empower us to pick up our cross and follow after him. The Holy Spirit does not empower us and enable us to live for God's glory as we are focused in on ourselves. That is not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit's primary role is to illumine and magnify in believers' hearts Christ and his glory and his cross. Brothers and sisters, if you are seeking to live out your Christian life, if you are seeking to be courageous as a Christian, by looking at yourself and your capabilities, I promise you all you will have in your sufferings is misery and pain and suffering and darkness. You will have no peace. And I can promise you that when the time comes and it's time for you to stand up for Christ, you will most likely fail. But when we day by day set our eyes on Christ, and his glory that comes by way of the cross, the Spirit works in us, enabling and empowering us to pick up our cross and follow him because our focus and our intention is on the right object. And we can bear our cross with joy and peace reigning in our hearts because our focus is on that which is our joy and our peace and our glory. What suffering scares you today? Do not look inward. Friends, all you can accomplish on your own is hell itself. You are not the answer to courageous Christian living. Christ and his glory is. Look to him and allow the spirit to do his work, to empower you to follow the Lord of glory who is glorified at the cross of Calvary. Second and finally, the glory of Christ and God's word. In verse 4, we are told that Elijah and Moses are with Christ, speaking with him. Now, I just want to note quickly two things, two things that are significant about Elijah and Moses being here. First, what we should see here with Elijah and Moses is that they serve as witnesses. They serve as witnesses, in any major event within the Old Testament and according to Hebrew tradition, there was always to be at least two or more witnesses to that event. And so here we are to see Moses and Elijah serving as witnesses to this divine event, to this glory of Christ. Second, they serve as witnesses respectively as representatives of the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets. Moses representing the law of the Old Testament, and Elijah representing the prophets of the Old Testament. And so what you have here really is nothing more than what we read of Paul from the pen of Paul in Romans 3, verse 21, where Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets are witnessing this glorious event here on this mountain. Now, we have to ask, what is it that they are serving as witnesses to? Certainly, they are serving as witnesses to the glory of Christ, to the same thing that Peter, James, and John are beholding. But I think more specifically, we are to see them as serving as witnesses to what God the Father says through the cloud in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Here is God the Father. Here is Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of Elijah and Moses, coming in a cloud and telling and saying, listen to my son. Now this would remind this cloud that God the Father is speaking through would remind any Old Testament saint of God's divine presence that is seen time and time again in the Old Testament in the form of a cloud. Think of in the desert as Israel is trekking toward the promised land. God presents himself by day to his people through a cloud and by a pillar of fire by night. Now what is worth noting is that it is Moses that is here serving as a witness to this transfiguration. And in Exodus 24 verse 17, after six days of God's glory cloud covering Mount Sinai, On the seventh day, God speaks through the cloud to Moses, and Moses delivers God's word to the people. Notice the added information that Mark gives us in verse 2 of chapter 9. Mark adds that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And on the seventh day, the glory cloud on top of the mountain, and God speaks through that cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. Christ is that final prophet that now is like the one Moses that has gone before him. And God now on the seventh day does not speak through an Old Testament prophet like Moses. He speaks finally and completely in and through his son. He is that promised one that we read of earlier in Deuteronomy 18. Hebrews 3, or excuse me, Hebrews 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken through the Son. In Hebrews 3, the writer will speak of Christ's glory being more glorious than Moses's, because Moses was faithful over God's house as a servant whereas Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Here as Christ is presented in all of his glory, he is presented as one whose glory outshines the Old Testament prophets, as one whose glory outshines the Old Testament law. God is saying, in effect, as Jesus is here glorified before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, behold my son who is the radiance of my glory, the exact imprint of my nature. Listen to him. He 
is my final word. And Moses and Elijah fade into the background. And all that is left is the Son of God, God's glorified, embodied word. Where do you go in order to hear from God? Where do you go? Unfortunately, there are so many answers today into the church to that question. People will go to gurus, spiritual directors. They'll go to five-step, seven-step, 12-step programs. They'll go to that little voice inside of themselves. I recently watched a documentary on the self-help industry. And it's amazing, the self-help industry, how many millions of dollars this industry makes each and every year. People will literally spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to go to these seminars from these self-help gurus. And what stunned me about it all is that these people that go to these self-help seminars oftentimes are self-proclaimed Christians, spiritual people. The gurus themselves are self-proclaimed Christians, spiritual people. And what is so often the prominent theme in their advice is that the answer to a fulfilling life rests in yourself. The answer to a fulfilling life rests in yourself. And all you have to do is just dig a little deeper. Now, we might not have ever been swayed by the self-help industry. Perhaps we never will be. But let's admit, just as we run to ourselves for answers to how we will suffer, so also we run to ourselves to see how God is speaking to us. God's word to us is so often determined by our life's history, by us and our experiences. And God's word to us becomes this unstable ship that sways to and fro by every wave and wind of life's experiences. Rather than being stabilized, consolidated, anchored once and for all in the sun. Many of you in this room are currently dealing with suffering. Many of you in this room have dealt with more severe suffering than I will ever probably deal with in my life. But whether your suffering today is light or heavy, God's word to you, God's word of comfort, God's word of peace to you is always, always found in the same place, in his son. You want to know what God is saying to you? in particular circumstances and places in life, then immerse yourself in the sun. Saturate yourself in the doctrines and the truths that come in God's word that highlight and magnify Christ in our hearts. Immerse yourself in your knowledge and understanding of that final word that has come in the sun. The glory of Christ, that white, refulgent, intensely white, radiant white glory has been manifested so that you and me would run to Christ and Christ alone to hear God's voice to us.
to hear God's word to us. What are you dealing with today, brothers and sisters? Where are you running to hear from God? If you run anywhere but the sun, it is a dead voice. The living voice of God is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Dear friend, uh, dear God, we, we are overwhelmed by the glory of your son. And we thank you for him. And we thank you for your final word that is found in him and in him alone. Oh Lord, pour out your spirit upon this people here this morning that we would run with glee and joy to him because in him is your final word to us. In all the pains and in all the sorrows that we deal with in this passing world, fallen world, Christ is the answer. And your word is found in him and in him alone. Fill our hearts by your spirit and drive us to him more and more each day so that we would hear your gracious word to us that says, peace, forgiven. We thank you, O God, for this hour of worship. Bless us now as we end this hour of worship and go into our fellowship meal. Bless our time together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we speak to one another and converse and listen to one another, might our hearts burn even then for the Lord of glory. Do this, we pray, for we ask it all in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.